City on the edge. 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 It's really on the edge. Okay. Well, uh, that's a that's a new voice. Um, not not an entirely new voice on our introduction. We are joined today by. Uh, at this point, I think we should call you a contributor, uh, Roland Pentela, um, who you may recognize from our Little Beaver Town episode, and he is here today with uh, with some more fascinating stories from Albuquerque's past for us. Yeah, excited to hear. And we are honoring, I almost said celebrating, and that's surely not the right word. Uh, we are honoring today uh, Pearl Harbor which occurred 76 years ago on December 7th of 1941, uh, beginning at 7.48 in the morning when Japanese planes and submarines attacked Mm -hmm. ships in port at Pearl Harbor. And we are going to be talking a little bit about two vessels that have a Pearl Harbor connection and then also have a surprising New Mexico connection. And so, um, but first I thought we would actually just uh, maybe mention a couple of people that we, we know of who, uh, who lost their lives in, in the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, that came from New Mexico. And, and Nora, you, you uh, yeah. found some names there. Yeah. And I found um, New Mexicans who were on the Arizona. And so that was a really vulnerable ship you know, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And two were brothers. So they were the Livers brothers or Livers brothers. And they lived in Berlin, um, graduated from Berlin High. The youngest did in 1940. That was Raymond. And so Raymond and his brother, Wayne, joined the army. And then they found themselves on the USS Arizona in 1941 and sadly perished. Okay. Yeah. And you said there were a, a total of seven New Mexicans on, on the USS Arizona? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there was another uh, young man from Albuquerque, and he was Oren Sumner, and then those were the uh, local ones, the Albuquerque area, and then there were five other or four other New Mexicans okay. also. So they lost yeah. their lives, and we, we honor them. Yes. Um, and may they rest in peace. Yes, rest. And um, an interesting fact about the Livers brothers were that they were one of twenty-three sets of brothers on the Arizona. Jeez, which is just—it's that's really a lot of sets of brothers. Yeah. I wonder if I mean that, that must have been on purpose, or maybe they were just taking people from regionally. Right, and you know yeah. the families were asking multiple sons to sign up to help support family. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, but thank you for Thanks to them and thanks to the families. Um so now we, let's uh I want to put a picture in your mind which is 1943. What month uh, what month are we talking about here, Roland? That was January the 14th. January 14th, 1943. So um a year and a little bit later on Central Avenue Albuquerque, New Mexico, a submarine being marched down the street. What is going on there? And that is what Roland Pentela is here to talk to us about. This is a this is a photograph you found that um, kind of uh, alerted you to this this story, right, Roland? Yes, I'm uh, part of the Albuquerque Historical Society and one of the eleven guides who gives a walking historical tour on Central from first to eighth. Mm-hmm. And so in the preparation of uh, giving that tour, we started looking for photographs of uh, Central Avenue uh, from history, and we came across this one where there's a submarine on Central. Whoa. An unusual sight in New Mexico, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we're a mile above sea level, so uh, it's hard to get there. Obviously, this one was on a tractor-trailer rig. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But still, why would a submarine be going down Central? And that, um, as they say, led me down the rabbit hole. Okay. Uh, I found out that uh, this sub was called HA-19. It was a Japanese mini-sub. It carried two uh, sailors, and it had two 1,000-pound uh, torpedoes in its nose, 
and it was part of the Pearl Harbor attack. Five of these um, mini-subs were sent, and they actually had a tender or a larger sub that they were attached to then brought them across the Pacific to close by, a couple of miles off of the entrance to the uh, Oahu Harbor, and they were then released, and they were supposed to go into the harbor and do whatever damage they could. So that's like a, so I'm picturing like a mothership kind of, Situation like the big submarine with the little submarines attached to it. Yeah, they were um, kind of bolted or attached to the back end of the submarine. I've seen a picture of the big submarine with the little submarine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the and, and to call this little isn't really uh, uh, too little. I mean, it was yeah. something like forty tons, uh, so it was a pretty big yeah. deal. And then the uh, the photograph, which we'll we'll have uh, posted on our our Facebook page, probably has the cover of this. Uh, episode, you can see the the people kind of gathered around outside of it. And certainly, small's not the word that that comes to mind. But it was only manned by two people, right? And uh, by the way, at that parade, uh, that is known even today as one of the largest military parades ever in Albuquerque's history. Wow. They believe that twenty thousand public spirited Albuquerqueans showed up to watch Whoa. the parade, which included bands and. Right. Um, it was a big deal. The schools were let out, banks closed, uh, many companies closed, and uh, people came out not only to see it, but the big draw is the Navy had welded on uh, catwalks to either side and then had cut portholes in it and replaced those with glass. And then they put two, um, I hesitate to say dummies, um, human replicas inside. <laughs> I, th- I think it's okay to call yeah. them dummies. I, I don't know. Um, I haven't uh, checked my, my uh, Facebook to see whether that's a, a not okay to say anymore. But. Well, Once and, you post it and, see and I've not happens. seen a picture of these human rec- replicas, so I'm not sure since there was a lot of hatred uh, oh. for Japanese at that time, uh, they may have been characterized. Mm-hmm. Char- Caturized. Yeah, that's a um, worry. And, and maybe they're not. It's good that their pictures aren't available. But um, so you could walk up the side of this on stairs mm-hmm. and then walk down the the catwalks to peer inside of the uh, submarine. Now the Navy had after it was captured. and We'll talk about how that happened. Yeah, I want to hear uh, that After sure. it was captured, they took it to the Mare Island. Uh, naval station in San Francisco and completely gutted it because they wanted to find out whatever technology they could discover from this. Maybe we were going to have mini subs also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem, and I don't think why we, the United States, went for mini subs, is that these were designed to be kamikaze um, yeah. vessels. Oh. So there was no expectation that they would escape and be mm-hmm. recovered. It was just understood that these were right. making a one-way trip, huh? The the purpose of the submarine being in Albuquerque was that it was a war bonds tour. So from Mare Island and San Francisco all the way across the country to Chicago, the the vehicle visited cities, and for $1 for an adult, and I think it was 50 cents or 25 cents for a child, uh, that was the cost of peering in these portholes. That seems um, pretty pricey. Yes, it was. But Back then. Yeah. Um, it, it's estimated that over $175,000 oh. was garnered in Albuquerque from these sales. And in fact, part of that was $10,000 that was contributed by the city of Albuquerque. Oh, wow. And that's to fund the war effort. Yeah, war bonds right. funded is, the war effort, yeah, right? It's, it's and, kind of a foreign concept now, right? Like you don't think about buy spending extra money to fund the army or whatever. No, our war well, our wars are different than they were before. Uh, now we charge them to the uh, to our Chinese credit card. There we go. <laughs> um the, <Look> at that. <laughs> the uh, this war bonds tour was very very successful. And um, so, you know, in Albuquerque, just like in all the other cities that it visited, um, uh, money was gained, and, and uh, I don't have a figure for this. I've looked for it. I haven't found it. And, of course, then you'd have to remember that's $1943. Right. Right. And so $175,000 was 
real money, I as mean, they say. Got to be running into the millions, I would assume. Although, I don't know. Now I there's just always multiply things by 10. <laughs> there's a funny history mystery here, too. For the city's $10,000 donation, mm-hmm. they were entitled to a souvenir from the ship. Oh, okay. Mm. A, that souvenir was the piece of the metal exterior that had been cut out to put the portholes oh. in for viewing. Oh. So that piece of that souvenir was handed to somebody in the city of Albuquerque. And I think if anybody knows the current commission chair at that time, Tingley, we, oh, it probably okay. ended up on his, on his desk mantle. or his office. <laughs> and I've asked around and no one seems to know where this souvenir That's of the submarine went. Right. Somebody, if you happen to have a big slab of metal. Curved. 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 <laughs> of unknown provenance. And your family may or may not have a connection to, to Tingley. Uh, Clyde Tingley, then uh, let us know. We'd like to look at it. We won't. Don't, we won't. We won't rat you out. Don't take it to the scrapyard. Seriously, right? <laughs> and, uh, it's a it's an interesting um, piece of Albuquerque history. Yeah. Well, you know, this submarine uh, came into New Mexico. It was coming uh, east, obviously. It came into Deming, New Mexico, and was on display on Thursday, January the seventh. It then went to Lordsburg. Lordsburg. Las Cruces, uh, went down to El Paso and went to Fort Bliss, came back up into New Mexico and stopped at Hatch. Then it went to Hot Springs, uh, then called Hot Springs, currently Truth or Consequences. Um, It then went to Berlin, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. It was there and and the uh, soldiers and the the airmen there. Of course, there weren't airmen at that time. Uh, the Air Force was a part of the Army at that time. Right. Mm. Uh, went to Kirtland um, and then Albuquerque on Thursday, January 14th. And then it went east. It drove on Route 66 through to Harris Canyon. Oh, and wow. many thought, how did this large item on the trailer get through there? And it turns out that the trailer was ingeniously designed so that it kind of had movable wheels, like okay. I guess the back end of a, a fire truck with mm-hmm. a ladder on mm-hmm. it. So it was able to negotiate the curves on uh, Route 66 through Terrace. It then went from Buford, which now is Moriarty, uh, to Roswell, Artesia, and Carlsbad on Monday, January the 18th, before it headed to Texas, and it was in Pecos on Tuesday the 19th. Let's back up. How did this happen to be captured? How did this happen to be paraded down Main Street America at all? Well, um, and it, it's funny. You see the picture on Central of a submarine, and all of a sudden you're on uh, a race to find out how did they get there. Right. Um, of course, Pearl Harbor was a horrible uh, event for the U.S. Um, uh, 2,400 Americans died that day mm-hmm. in the attack, yes. and 1,177 of them were on the Arizona. Wow. So more than half oh of gosh. the total... Uh, uh, death count was from the Arizona. So um, the 350 Japanese aircraft that participated in this um, really did a horrible job on our Hmm. uh, naval fleet and the uh, brave sailors who were on those ships. And I didn't realize that there were submarines at all involved. Yes. Um, until um, recently. No one told me when I was growing up. I right. mean, that was not in my history class. You picture the zeros flying in. <laughs> yeah, you always see the aircraft. And, of course, there were 350 of them. Aww. It turns out, in addition to those 350 aircraft, were five two-man mini-subs. Mm. They, were, um, they had been under development by the Japanese Navy since the mid-30s. They had been working on this mini-sub design and concept, and they had changed the designs many times. So the ones that uh, participated in Pearl Harbor were um, 
quite a improvement from what they started. But there were five ships. The five subs were on mother subs. They were attached at the back of much larger subs, subs that were probably three times as long as these mini subs. And these uh, five ships traveled across the Pacific to be lying in wait that morning, uh, you know, in, in the darkness that morning. Right. And uh, they could release these mini subs underwater. And so basically they had uh, attachment devices that could be released from inside the larger sub and allow the smaller sub to float free. Okay. Okay. So five of these subs were sent to attack Pearl Harbor. Um, One of them uh, was on its way in and the USS Ward happened to be leaving the harbor on routine um, uh, manners, so it it wasn't escaping anything, but it was just leaving the harbor. They saw it because these subs didn't really submerge. I mean, most of them, but the conning tower would stay up. Really? So uh, they saw and they they shelled it and Mm -hmm. wiped out one of them. Okay. So one down, four to go. Uh, A second one was also shelled, and um, was found in shallow water outside the harbor. Um, it was salvaged and then buried in a landfill. Or I, it was called a landfill, but they were building a some kind of a breakwater or harbor. So oh, okay. that one okay. got so it was in part, the water. So. Yeah, that was part of that. Hmm. Um, a third one um, ran aground, and that's that's HA nineteen, the one that we're talking about. Okay, um, its gyroscope was not working. <laughs> now. Um, you know they couldn't navigate uh, really by looking outside because it was yeah. first it was dark and the second mm-hmm. thing is they need to remain mostly submerged. Right. Right. But the gyroscope was goofy. Okay. And and uh, basically the poor submarine or good for us the submarine kept going in circles. Oh, it was geez. very hard to steer. So let's talk about the wow. other. Th- we'll go so back to two that. Two left, one. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. So. One of them, um, and they don't know what happened to this one, but it was found south of Pearl, and it was found in 1960, oh. and both of its torpedoes were intact. So it oh. it didn't participate. Is, these submarines kind of sound kind of terrible. Uh, like they, well, they were awful. It's 1941 technology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, wow. I, I couldn't build a submarine, but, right. you know. Um, and you know these 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 were kind of amazing. They were battery powered, uh-huh. and they had a 600 horsepower engine that turned counter rotating screws in the back, and um, they were not rechargeable basically. So they were a one use one time. type item. But 600 horsepower is a lot. Is a lot yeah. The top speed of these was designed to be uh, 30 knots. That's pretty good. But they only really did in practical use 19 knots, which is still... Oh. Mm. I mean, most battleships, can, if they make 10 knots, they're very, very happy. Mm. Wow. And um, finally, uh, the the fifth one is the most interesting, I think. Okay. Well, except for the one we're talking about. But <laughs> it was... Um, by the way, there were two tor- torpedoes and these were 1,000-pound torpedoes. They were uh, Model 97s. They were driven by compressed air. And um, th- people said, oh, you know, there were a lot of torpedoes fired. How do you know which ones might have come from the mini-subs? Well, the torpedoes dropped by the aircraft were about 500 pounds, and they were mm. completely different. And so you okay. could tell um, through photographs that were taken at the time and other things which Contrails from the torpedoes were from larger ones or smaller ones, but hmm. this this one um, I'm just calling it the fifth one. Um, they don't know what happened. They think that after they fired their torpedoes, and this is the only one of five that they believe right. fired a torpedo, and they believe it may have hit the Oklahoma. Okay. Um, they then the the Japanese turned around and tried to make it out. Of the harbor. Oh, so they weren't too keen on the kamikaze thing. Oh, wow. Thing. Well, they, they thought, <laughs> heck, you know, we're still alive. Let's try and run yeah. out. Um, they made it a certain distance, and then there's something called the East Lock, L-O-C-H, mm-hmm. I think. 
and and they they think they turned into that. Okay. Uh, they had very accurate charts, by the way, in yeah. these things. Um, and so, you know, where did that come from? Yeah. Um, the they found this um, submarine uh, only recently in about two thousand nine. Wow. And there is a great story about these submarines done by PBS Nova, mm-hmm. done in 2009, and you can find it on YouTube. That's okay. where I found it. Uh, very interesting. Uh, an hour-long show. But they found it outside in like um, thousands of feet of water, and they wondered what was going on. It was broken into three halves. There were cables wrapped around it, and mm-hmm. they didn't know why were there cables. So the best... I the best idea they have is there was a accident in 1944, I think it was, mm-hmm. in this East Lock. There was an ammunition explosion that blew up a bunch of landing craft that included uh, tanks and other mm-hmm. um, uh, army vehicles. And they found this submarine and there's, it's surrounded by miscellaneous pieces of metal and um, tanks. Wow. So they thought, okay. what's going on? They figure that what happened is the, pl- the, um, the submarine was scuttled in the East Lock by mm-hmm. the crew, as they should have. They blew it up, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sunk to the bottom, and it was there. Then three, four years later, when the accident happened at Pearl Harbor, um, there was so much debris in the harbor, the Navy just started hauling it all out. They picked up everything they could find, hauled it out, and dumped it where they found this sub. And they think that the Navy folks that hauled it out there didn't realize what they they had grabbed. They just... Yeah, thought of it as a piece of salvage. Yeah. So imagine they're not doing it one vehicle at a time. They're just like sending hooks and nets and things. So going back to HA-19. Yeah, okay. That's it the was, Albuquerque traveling. Yeah, that's sub. the one that traveled. It was commanded by um, uh, a gentleman named uh, Kazuo Sakamaki. And he survived his uh, shipmate because... Because it floundered and they mm-hmm. couldn't steer it, mm-hmm. it stuck on a reef. And, um, and so they were given orders to try and uh, scuttle it. They attempted. It didn't work. Um, his, uh, Kazuo's uh, shipmate jumped out or fell out and ended up being drowned. Mm-hmm. The Air Force saw the, the ship mm-hmm. on this uh, reef so they went out there and they bombed the water on the outside of the reef, knowing that it would create waves that would lift it off the reef and get it into the shore. Oh, okay. So that's where it was recovered on the shore. And Kazuo Sakamaki became the first Japanese prisoner of war. Really? Oh, wow. wow. So was he the only survivor from these submarines? From all five, he was the only one who survived. And wow. his first words, and he spoke English. Oh. His oh, wow. first words when uh, he was standing on the beach surrounded by infantrymen with their guns on <laughs> him, they said, please shoot me. Oh, <gasps> man. Poor guy. Oh, wow. Because he considered living after being, um, his honor was to go and, and make this kamikaze run. Right. And, and it was not good for him to live through this. In fact, sure. he was revered and hated. Uh, not revered, that's the opposite, but yeah. he was hated by his military folks for having survived. Man. Um, he ended up living eight more years, and during that time after the war, he joined the Toyota organization and was one of their um, um, major um, employees. Uh, he was uh, in management. So Toyota in Japan or in... Toyota in Japan. Okay. so Remember, not- this is... In the late 40s, right, early so 50s, there's not so a lot of there is no Toyota in the yeah. United States. So he was held in the U.S. somewhere? Yes, he then... was a prisoner of war and, and released in 1945 when mm-hmm. the war ended. Do you happen to know where he was held as a prisoner of war by any chance? No, I don't. No, just... that's, a, that's a great question. Well, we were... Are you like a, like a <laughs> journalist? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I ask is just because we talked about Lordsburg, which, of course, the, the submarine had gone through, and there was a, a major... Um, Japanese internment camp and POW camp there. So I was like, 
that would be sort of an interesting situation mm. if you were there when the uh, when the submarine came through. Well, you've given me something else to try and find <laughs> out. And uh, you told me, um, I believe that he had a, had an occasion to see the submarine again or something. Yeah, it turns out that the um, the submarine was. Uh, in 1947, after the tour that ended in Chicago, in uh, let's see, when was it? Oh, I don't have a Chicago date. Uh, in January of 1947, the submarine went on display at the Naval Station in Key West. But in 1991, the submarine became a permanent exhibit of the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas. Oh. And mm-hmm. you can go there today and, mm-hmm. and view it. You can touch it. I mean, it's right on display in this large, like, darkened blue room, and you feel like you're underwater right next to the oh, sun. Wow. Do you have to pay a dollar? No. No? Uh, I think, because I was there, and I saw the submarine. There, there's no more portholes in it. Oh. They've repaired those. What does it look like? It, uh, like a long, black metal cigar. Ah, uh, that sounds wow. about right. It, it's a very interesting design. The, mm-hmm. the front of it was des- around the torpedo tubes that... The torpedoes, you know, you see war pictures of submarines, mm-hmm. and they, they roll the torpedoes in, they close the watertight door behind them, then they press a button and the torpedo tube is flooded, and then the captain says fire, and then someone presses the fire button and it goes. Well, they didn't have room for all that hydraulics and everything, so the torpedoes became the nose of the craft. Mm-hmm. And oh. if you see a picture of the nose of this, and I've got some pictures I can share mm-hmm. for, yeah, the, that'd be for great. the podcast. Uh, you see two bulbous things. Those are the noses of the mm. torpedoes sticking out of it. Oh. And then pr- to protect them from submarine nets uh, is this kind of a metal arrangement that was supposed to take any wires and move it up and over the submarine or cut them. Hmm. And so it's a very distinctive front end. Um, but so in 1991, uh, when it was put on display in the, the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War, uh, Sakamaki was invited to come and attend the opening ceremonies or the dedication. That's... And so he got to see his submarine again. Interesting. That sounds that must be a weird feeling. uncomfortable, maybe. Or, <laughs> I don't know. What did, did he uh, did he have any words or anything that he uh, he he shared upon that? If he if he gave a speech, it's not recorded in history. Okay. And I've contacted the museum in Fredericksburg, and uh, their response is, "We don't have anybody to do your research, but you're welcome to come here." Okay, that'll be your next research trip. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Uh, funded, of course, by City on the Edge. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're, we're rolling in it. <laughs> Uh, there you go. So that yeah, please uh, please donate so that we can send uh, Roland out to do a little <laughs> bit more uh, research on this. Well, what a cool story. So yeah, who would have thought? Yeah, and Not there me. might be a chunk of it somewhere still in Albuquerque. Yeah. Um, that's the one I'd really like to find because that's the one that's really connected to Albuquerque. That curvilinear right. piece of uh, metal somewhere out there. Um, Seriously, if you if you know anything about this, please let us know. But I, I feel like it probably somebody would have just like not known what the heck it was. And well, and it, it turns out, uh, you know, all presidents have libraries, right? Sure. Well, apparently, not former mayors of Albuquerque. We really need like a tingly museum. Yeah, or something. I mean, he deserves something. You know, not even a room in any of the the, the libraries in town. I guess they just settled for naming half of the landmarks (laughs) in Albuquerque after him. But we need his effects, you know. Mm -hmm. We need to to get a better view of of him as a person. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I mentioned something about Mayor Mayor Tingley. I think I mentioned how he wasn't actually a mayor um, to some coworkers the other day. And they were... They said, wait, he was a real person? <laughs> like, you know, I don't know what they had expected that Tingley was, you know, yeah. just they, they knew, knew that everything was named after Tingley, but somehow hadn't made the connection that that was maybe actually a person. It's like a char- character from Frozen. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He yeah. needs a song. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, um, any anything uh, you want to add about the, uh, the submarine? What was it called? The HH... HA-19 was its designation, and and there's a Japanese word for what that stands for, and I can't pronounce it. I I could try, but I would murder it. Yeah. Um, 
I would like to mention one more thing is that a lot of this research was done by a former submariner, Dick Brown. Mm -hmm. He's a member of the East Mountains Historical Society and uh, a very nice fellow. He also was very instrumental in getting uh, SSN 779 named the New Mexico, the submarine named New Mexico. Uh, I don't have a lot of information okay. about it other than it's uh, one of our more modern submarines. Right. Well, I hope someone here has nice. some information <laughs> on it. I don't actually have much information on that one, but it oh. does uh, segue nicely to a former craft that was uh, named the USS New Mexico. Um, so, Nora, you work on uh, UNM campus. I do. And you've noticed that there is a, a bell Outside of the student union building on the mm-hmm. north side. Yes. Sort of in a, a funny structure. It, yeah. Like a weird three, I don't know, three-sided metal. Yeah. Um, I, can't, I don't even cage? know what to call it. Cage around Something it. Something or, yeah. Have you ever looked at it closely? No. Do you know what it's from? No. <laughs> I do. Why are you quizzing me? <laughs> oh. It is uh, one of uh, three significant pieces of memorabilia from uh, the same ship, um, the USS New Mexico, which was a, uh, a battleship. Um, BB-40 was its number. Hmm. And it was actually stationed at... Pearl Harbor prior to the attack and then was uh, uh, promoted in a way to go into the Atlantic and guard British supply lines where it was uh, it was considered like a promotion because it was such a stately kind of intimidating vehicle. Really? Right. Um, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about the USS New Mexico. Had you heard of it before, Roland? Was that uh, something that you'd gone into before? I knew that there was a uh, battleship long ago named after it. And as we've di- earlier discussed, it was commissioned in 1918. So yes. oh, that wow. was before my time. Very old, oh. uh, <laughs> indeed. Even older than Roland. <laughs> <laughs> Not much, but... So yeah, it was it was commissioned in 1918, and one of its uh, first tasks, because that was the, as the w- First World War was winding down, um, was to lead the escort of the USS George Washington as it carried President Woodrow Wilson to uh, France, where he signed the Versailles uh, Accord. Oh wow! Um, and ended World War One. So. That's an important. It kind part of began of with a uh, began with a bang. It was actually the uh, the first um, warship in the world that had what was called a turbo electric engine, and it was often called the electric battleship at the time, and also the wonder ship because of uh, how wonderful it was. Um, it was six hundred and twenty four feet long, had a beam of ninety seven feet and five inches, draft of thirty feet, displaced thirty two thousand tons of water and she was the first of her class which was aptly named the new mexico class so uh, as i mentioned she came in at the end of world war one um so she never actually saw action during that war and instead um became one of the uh one of the prize jewels of the of the navy during the interwar period Interesting. Um, her other nickname was the Queen because she kept winning all the prizes and uh, and competitions for different um, different naval competitions that were going on at the time. She had a reputation, uh, a proud reputation that was mentioned in the um, in articles on her onboard ship uh, newsletter, which was called the Salvo, uh, that the crewmen on her did not curse as much as other naval crewmen. How and they refined. were quite proud of that, yes. <laughs> um, why are they always female? Why are ships always yeah, female? and like cars and, you know. That's a good question. Do you have any idea, Roland? No. No. No idea. Okay, well, we'll just have to leave that one to another time. Thanks for <laughs> Send asking. Send your comments that. in underneath the podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, she underwent several upgrades during that interwar period, and as uh, World War II began looming on the horizon, uh, she was still in active duty and was sent, as I said, to Pearl Harbor, stationed there for a time, 
um, given a sort of promotion to go guard the shipping lanes of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And then when the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred, she was immediately called back to the Pacific and participated in uh, numerous uh, campaigns uh, in the Pacific Front of World War II, um, and and survived. Right, she survived them all. Yes. Uh, so the notable um, campaigns that she was actually involved in in 1944, she was part of the Marshall Islands Invasion Force. In 1945, uh, she participated in the liberation of Luzon in the Philippines and was part of the pre-invasion shelling. Um, and it was during this time that the Japanese had begun employing kamikaze fighters in great numbers as mm-hmm. a sort of a last-ditch effort to, to stave off the, um, the American forces. And she was actually hit by a kamikaze fighter really? um, during this battle. It crashed into her bridge... Killed her commanding officer, Captain Robert Walter Fleming, and 29 other crewmen. Um, She went for repairs uh, back at Pearl Harbor and then was right back out on the the open seas uh, within about a month or so in time to participate in the uh, Okinawa invasion uh, on the 26th of March where she destroyed eight Shinyo suicide boats, which was um, something I hadn't encountered before. Japanese loved the idea of the suicide attack vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Shinyo suicide boats, boats were small motorized craft uh, piloted by one man with some ordnance attached to the nose and then a triggering device as well. So they would try to ram the ships mm-hmm. as they were, oh, they were coming in. And it was just, you know, the, the idea was that you would lose your life in, in defense of your country. Right. Um, so she, she destroyed eight of those uh, in Okinawa. Then as she was returning to her berth in Hagushi, um, on the 12th of May, she was attacked by another two kamikazes, both of which hit her. Wow. Um, one, I think, only hit her with a bomb that it was carrying as it plunged into the ocean nearby, and the other of which actually scored a direct hit and it set her on fire, killed 54 of the crewmen on board, wow. and another 120 were wounded. Um, fortunately, because of, uh, of quick action by the crew, they were able to actually extinguish the fire within 30 minutes, and she uh, was able to make it back for repairs in late um, on the 28th of May. And then she began participating in rehearsals for the actual invasion of Ooh. homeland Japan, which, of course, would be looming on the horizon. What year was the 28th of May? Uh, I'm sorry, this is 1945. Okay. okay. Yeah, so we've, uh, we've, we went from 1944, uh, the Marshall Islands, to 1945. So May 28th, 1945, um, she gets repaired. They start rehearsing for the invasion of Japan, and they never actually make it. Because um, on August 15th, uh, World War II, um, the Pacific War anyway, came to an end with the surrender of Japan after the, uh, after the attack on Hiroshima mm-hmm. and Nagasaki with atomic weapons. Right. So she came back home. And unfortunately, she was no longer a top-of-the-line ship. Mm. And the powers that be decided that it wasn't worth upgrading these old ships from World War One to face the mm. new threats of the post-World War II era. And she was um, officially decommissioned in Boston on July 19th, 1946, and then stricken from the Naval Vessel Register on the 25th of February, 1947, and then sold for scrap for a price of $381,000 uh, to a company called Lipset, which was a division of Luria Brothers. Now, oddly enough, there's still a story that occurs after she sold oddly. the scrap. Oh. Oddly enough. Now, this <laughs> I, I had never heard How of this. oddly? <laughs> Very oddly. So she begins getting towed to Newark, New Jersey, where Lipset has a, uh, a yard where they scrap battleships. Um, 
Just before this happened, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, had entered into a contract with the Port Authority of New York to get $70 million to beautify their waterfront on the condition that they no longer used it for scrapping warships. So he declared that they were not allowed to take uh, the USS New Mexico into Newark Bay. As the USS New Mexico is coming anyway, a, a storm gets whipped up. The two tugboats that are, are hauling her, she's not moving under her own power, are caught in this storm and uh, it becomes so dangerous for them that they're forced to cut the lines. And she begins drifting oh my out gosh. as basically a ghost ship. She still had three people on board. Whoa. Um, but they didn't really, they weren't able to do anything other than basically turn the lights on and off. And they were, she was lost for about a day. Oh, just on the high seas again. Just on the seas, drifting aimlessly. Wow. As a derelict. Um, The submarine, uh, the uh, the tugboats are able to find her again and pull her back toward Newark. Meanwhile, the mayor of Newark has decided that um, he's absolutely not going to stand for her arrival. And he calls out his navy. Oh, God. So this is... (laughs) The mayor has a navy. (laughs) Well... Let me tell you what the Navy is. So this is a, uh, an Associated Press article from, uh, from 1947, November 11th. Uh, Newark, New Jersey calls its Navy to bar junked battleship. The city of Newark determined to battle against use of Port Newark as a scrap sh- scrapyard for warships, decided today to block the port's channel with fireboats to prevent entry tomorrow of the battleship New Mexico. The old battle wagon is being towed from Boston toward Newark, by tugs for scrapping by the Lipset Corporation, which bought it along with the battleships Wyoming and Idaho. Newark doesn't want the ships here, fearing that use of the port as a scrapyard would jeopardize a recently signed lease between Newark and the Port of New York Authority for development of the city's airport and seaport. Mayor Vincent J. Murphy took the occasion of an Armistice Day celebration to tell reporters of the decision to pit the city's navy of two fireboats against the battleship. (laughs) The fireboats, the William J. Brennan and the Michael P. Duffy, are 35 feet long and manned by a captain and crews of five. They carry a ton of foam powder and pumps as offensive weapons. I have given orders to the fire department and the police department, said Public Safety Director John B. Keenan, after a conference with Murphy, to employ whatever means are necessary, including the hiring of a tugboat to block the channel completely. I am not going to stand by and see the port of Newark become a perennial graveyard for Navy ships. Keenan added, this is not a fight with the Navy. (laughs) That's good clarification, I think. (laughs) The only deal the city had was with Lipset for the dismantling the Normandy and the Normandy only. Lipset recently completed scrapping the former French liner at the port of Newark. So the newspapers had a field day with this. They called it the Battle of Newark Bay <laughs> as it loomed up. Um, and so here is the, uh, the second incident that happened with the sub, the uh, tugboats hauling the, the uh, USS New Mexico ever closer to Newark. Newark Navy gets respite, battleship's tug disabled. The decommissioned battleship New Mexico rolled toward her last battle, the Battle of Newark Bay, and reduced speed today as one of her two towing tugs became disabled. A Coast Guard cutter and plane rushed to the aid of the tug, which was helping tow the New Mexico toward a Newark scrapyard from Boston. Newark officials, who want no more ships scrapped on the city's waterfront, have sent two tugboats armed with chemical spray and water hoses to block the New Mexico from the New York Harbor Channel. The Coast Guard reported the tug C. Hayward Messick had cast off from the 30,000-ton New Mexico in rough seas about 17 miles off Fire Island and 35 miles off New York Harbor. The tug radioed that she was in danger and might have to be abandoned. Meanwhile, the tug Dorothy Ann Messick continued to lug the battleship along toward the entrance of New York Harbor, of which Newark Bay is a part. Tense crews of the Newark Navy relaxed momentarily. I love that they're calling them the Newark Navy at this point. The Michael P. Duffy, its deck guns capable of firing 2,000 gallons of water and foam a minute at a 400-foot range, sat through the night with its crew of six on alert against any attempt to slip the former battleship through the channel under cover of darkness. That would be a trick. 
Fire Captain Walter Danow, in charge of the flagship of Newark Task Force, gave orders to his men to stand easy once the sky had cleared. Didn't think they'd dare to mi- to sorry. Didn't think they'd dare to set a night raid on us, he said without a trace of a smile, and a good thing for them that they didn't. During the patrol, contact by radio had been lost, and the Duffy's sister ship, the William P. Brennan, uh, was unable to contact her. The Duffy's fuel was running low, but pleas for relief to Admiral John B. Keenan, who acts as the public safety director, and less crucial times went unheeded. Um, so, yeah. So that was the scene set, and How the dramatic. Navy had to get involved at this point. So oh. the Navy sent their undersecretary, whose name is confusingly also Keenan. Let me see if I can find his name here. They sent, oh, sorry. They sent their undersecretary, W. John Kenny, to negotiate. Um, so after a few meetings between the, uh, the mayor of Newark and uh, the Lipset Corporation, um, they reached a compromise, which was that they would al- al- Newark would allow the New Mexico and the two other battleships, Idaho and Wyoming, to be brought in and scrapped, but then they would no longer be able to use that scrapyard. Uh, and Lipset had nine months only to take care of all of them, or they would be subjected to a fine of $1,000 per day after the deadline. Mm. That's pretty hefty. Pretty good for $1,947. So finally... The USS New Mexico made her last journey to Newark. She was greeted and escorted by the fireboats that had earlier been sent out to it. Like, literally, I don't quite understand their plan, but I guess they were going to spray water and at, foam at, and foam just, just to bother them. Just to irritate them. <laughs> as they came in. But they instead escorted them in, and uh, a bunch of kids from the Newark High School marching band uh, played an anthem as the uh, as the Aww. ship was uh, moored to the dock. I can see the uh, fireboats, you know, sa- throwing epaulets like, "Gosh darn you!" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> "Oh heck, don't bring that thing in!" Come on now, don't do it. Really, don't do it, or we'll say, "Don't do it again." Right? I just can't imagine anyone getting that passionate about this. <laughs> we'll be really cause. sad if you bring uh-huh. that battleship in. <laughs> now, meanwhile, in New Mexico. The Santa Fe Chamber of Commerce uh, issued an official protest against the mayor of Newark for <laughs> no. um, for besmirching the good name of New Mexico by refusing to let our battleship uh, that was named for our state go in. Uh, so that was so that was New Mexico's aspect. New of the Jerseyans story. and New Mexicans don't get along. <laughs> Are New Jerseyans and New Mexicans even aware of each other under normal circumstances? Well, I mean, when you when you uh, use your credit card online. Those names are all close together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are New right Mexico, there. New Jersey, New York. I know. By the way, I have a, another possible connection to uh, Pearl Harbor. Oh, okay. Um, earlier, we talked about how did New Mexico get its name? Yeah, the why USS did they, New Mexico. Why did they decide to name it New Mexico? Okay. Well, then that gets the question, why did the Arizona get named? Right. The Arizona was commissioned in 1914 in honor of the 47th state. Mm. And New Mexico then was the next state that was entered in or honored in that way right. for the ship that mm. was commissioned in 1918. Okay. So I think that's how the New Mexico got its name, so they were just going like the order. Arizona. Well, yeah. And the Arizona was damaged and, and ruined uh, at Pearl Harbor. So. Yeah. Mm. Tragic. So it's sort of like a older sister ship. Uh, it was younger, sibling. 1918. Yeah, I mean the yeah. Arizona. Was the Arizona older. was an yeah. older sister. So it's kind of sad. So they uh, they finally scrapped her. Um, in July 1948, and they sent the two bells from the battleship to New Mexico. The smaller bell. Uh, which only weighed 800 pounds, was given mm. to the University of New Mexico, and that's the one that you can see north of the Student Union building today. The larger bell, which was 1,100 pounds, uh, was on display in Santa Fe Plaza from 1948 until the early 1970s um, and is now a part of the New Mexico history collection. And last I heard, it is in storage... Uh, at the Palace of the Governors, um, waiting for a display of its own. 
Hmm. Um, and then the helm of the USS New Mexico was given to the Naval ROTC building at UNM. So you can oh. probably go see that uh, if you go to the Navy ROTC building. I've been in there and I didn't notice it. When you say helm, I'm thinking of this massive yeah. piece of metal. That's from what I understand, but I, I don't know. I couldn't find any pictures of it there. Hmm. Hmm. I did read that um, the uh, the Palace of the Governor's uh, New Mexico Museum was had attempted to actually retrieve the helm from the Naval ROTC building in order to build a, a display of the USS New Mexico. Um, but they said it was so integrated into the building itself that they weren't a, they weren't able to. It wasn't like they could just pick it up. It was well, somehow like by in helm. The wall. Are we talking about the the wheel, the steering wheel? Um, to you know, for a landlubber, that's what I would call it. Right, right. Uh, I believe it's the entire steering and control apparatus. Wow. Uh, they bring the captain to the helm. Right, exactly. So it's like the. I've seen pictures of other battleships' helms, and it's like the. Boy, here, here's my utter lack of uh, knowledge of what these things are. The thing that makes it go. <laughs> that thing, right. The I throttle. don't know what it's called, the throttle. <laughs> and then there's kind of a, a great big, like... Um, uh, thing. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> As well. Lots yeah. of big things. We might, have to, <laughs> we might have to revisit this subject with actual <laughs> terminology. Maybe we'll try to go find this at a, at yeah. a later date. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll have to figure that one out on our own. Um, there was also a uh, like a fifty-two silverware set, silver set that was uh, given to the uh, the city government of Santa Fe. Um, that seems to have disappeared. It's probably sitting right next to uh, Clyde Tingley's yes. submarine yes. chunk. Oh. If we can find um, one, we'll find the others. Yeah, and uh, that's about all I know of. There is, however, a book on the subject that has really? recently come out. By John, I'm sorry, Richard John Taylor. It's called uh, USS New Mexico BB40. Uh, it's from our good friends at Arcadia Publishing, which apparently has a book about everything that I've think, ever been interested in. I think Dick Brown worked on that. Okay. Yeah, the, the gentleman that did a lot of the research for this midget sub did also a book on the USS New Mexico. So. Well, you absolutely should check that out. And there's another book I should mention that I used uh, in my research. Uh, it's called Midget Submarines of the Second World War by Paul Kemp. And uh, it's not in print anymore, but you can probably find it on the used book uh, store on the Internet, which is where I found it. Okay. And I Very looked cool. at an article from the Santa Fe New Mexican, which is called A Salute to Two New Mexico Brothers Who Perished at Pearl Harbor um, by Milan Simonich. A gentleman by the name of Ken Smiley, who has a YouTube channel, uh, interviewed a survivor of the. Uh, psh, sorry, he interviewed a survivor of the USS New Mexico named Eugene Hampton. Who, uh, in the in the video, he uh, describes the actual kamikaze attacks. So you should check that out. His name is Ken Smiley, and uh, you can find his channel on YouTube by doing a search under that name. Okay. Well, thank cool. you. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thank you so oh, much, Roland. It's my yeah. pleasure. I love sitting on the edge. <laughs> we love you. Yes. Um, Always blowing our minds. So for this week's music profile, we're going to be talking to local hip-hop artist AC. And this is his song, Out the Dirt. Yeah. I get it out the dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now watch my money stay. Okay, today we are joined by AC. Um, he is a local, what would you say, hip-hop artist or rap artist? I would say hip-hop artist. Okay. So you can find his uh, his music on SoundCloud at uh, C, And uh, you have an album out, I know. Uh, what is that called? Uh, it's called The Beginning Mixtape. Okay. How can people How can people get that? Uh, they could hit me up on any social media sites that's Facebook or my Facebook page is at AC Music or my Instagram is AC underscore MRA or they could just leave a comment on SoundCloud and I'll read it and I'll get back to you or my email address is 
acmusicbooking at gmail.com. You can hit me up that way. Or on my CD, if you find it from someone else, I have my phone number on there. Okay. Nice. So you can cool. be contacted. All right. Um, so tell me about this song that we just heard called um, uh, Out the Dirt. Um, there's a lot of people that go through struggles and don't have the opportunities that other people have, like people that get hand-me-downs or people that are baby to a certain extent. And I feel like I'm one of those people that I got to do what I got to do in order to help my family survive. So um, worst case scenario, I'm going to get it how I get it. Okay. So like what you're saying is it's like the priorities are survival and the path to doing that. Um, it's all about like hard work or whatever, like doing what you exactly. got to do. Okay. It's very Albuquerque. And were you just, yeah. you know, thinking of this song, were you just thinking of a theme or an idea and that phrase hit you? Cause I love that phrase out the Um, a lot of people like to use the term out the mud as the same thing, but oh. here we don't get no rain. So I'm like, yes. it's going to, it's going to be pointless to say out the mud. And I see like, it's dry here. So I figure out the dirt. So I started rocking with that way before I even nice. wrote the song. I was already writing it everywhere and trying to get that song to be known, mm. trying to promote that song without even really pushing it onto people. Mm. Now, are you from uh, Albuquerque? I'm not from Albuquerque, but I represent Albuquerque because okay. these people rock with me. All right. Nice. So, um, how long have you been in Albuquerque? For about three years, but I've always came here as a youth, like every single weekend. Mm. So, I mean, I know there's talent here. You know the city, you know the the talent. And um, so, when you say people rock with you, what, what do you mean? What's what's that? I mean, I can consider a lot of people my fans in this city. Nice. Okay. Nice. So how did you did you get to know the scene, the music scene, when you came, you know, when you were young, or did it happen recently? Honestly, I was writing since I was young, mm. and that's where my head was always at. My dream is to actually help someone through my music, not even necessarily get famous. I want to get paid because if you ain't gonna get paid, that's stupid. Yeah. But we hear you. But I really want someone to take something positive out of my music. I was going to say, I noticed in your music, um, you, you do have a lot of like kind of positive themes. Like there's songs about, about your love for your, for your uh, significant other and your, your baby or uh, your daughter before she was born even. Um, so it seems like something that you, you pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I'm all about family. So That's like, cool. I mean, there's certain people that rap just to rap. I rap about trying to help other people before I help myself. And I've been in situations where I helped other people down to my last dollar and I'm stuck. But I really don't complain about that. I'll run into those people eventually sometime. Yeah, sort of a goes around, comes around kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So uh, how, did, how did you get into uh, this kind of music? How did you start? Uh, how did you decide that was something you really wanted to do enough to the point where you were investing your own time, your own money, all that kind of thing? Honestly, I have my little brother that was living here. Um, he goes by King Reek. Hmm. Um, I actually wanted to start a group, uh, MRA, but some situations went on with that and he moved out of state. Hmm. So I kind of just started running with it, still represent MRA, which stands for, uh, Mixed Rico Association. But, um, that being said, it's kind of how I actually went with it. And my first song was recorded with this dude that goes by name Zero. Shout out to Zero. Zach Romero, um, he's actually a barber right now, but at the time, I went to so many studios and they weren't giving me a chance because I guess I was different than everybody from the scene of Albuquerque. Mm, okay. I mean, I took it as whatever, but he gave me a chance and I posted a song and everyone was going with it. Nice. And a lot of people were like, do you really rap? And I was like, uh, I don't consider myself a rapper because... I'm in a different category yeah. than a rapper. I'm more of an artist. Yeah. Like I'll do you're serious. I'll do projects with any type of genre I'm willing to try out, but that's great, man. So you said before we were recording that uh you're from Alamogordo, right? Uh yeah, I'm and, from Alamogordo, yeah, yeah. New Mexico. Cool, man. And and also from Santa Domingo, is that right? I was born there. Yeah. And my dad's from San Domingo Pueblo, so Man, that's so awesome. Love it. Cool. I love that area. I love La Madera Road that comes right up to San Domingo and San Felipe. That was like my stomping ground growing up. So I love it out there. That's cool. Black Mesa. Can you um, yeah. talk a little bit about your name, AC? 
uh, while it's abbreviation for my real name and AC is just a phonetic way to put my abbreviation, which stands for always ask your conscience. Nice. Hmm. So tell me about that. What, what, what does always ask your conscience mean to you? I mean, because every time someone makes a choice, not just me, anytime someone makes a choice, there's always that gut feeling. So hmm. before you end up doing something, there's always, I don't know, either a devil or an angel that runs through your mind. That's what I mean by ask your conscience. Like hmm. you're going to question something like, should I do it? Should I not? That's just with everything you do. That's kind of what I nice. go through in life, no matter what I do. So it seems like you're pretty in touch with like a moral compass. Like you have a, you have a morality. I mean, I'm not trying to just get no stupid name out there. So I needed my name <laughs> to, great. I needed my name to stand for something and it had to stand for something that I believe in and I really live. Yeah. I love it, man. So, um, can you tell me about like, how did you come to Albuquerque? Uh, from Alamogordo, from Santo Domingo, like what what brought you here, you know, and stuck stuck you here? <laughs> um, I wanted to get out of both places, and I just wanted to <laughs> um, start doing music and nice. on the reservation. It's possible, but mm-hmm. it's too slow for me. I need things to go a little bit quicker, so I hit the city in Alamogordo. Um, I didn't do it too much because. I was kind of a troubled teen. I didn't really behave, um, but uh, good thing that I'm still here today because yeah. yeah. a lot of people said I wasn't going to make it past <laughs> age 18. Either I was going to be in prison or in the ground, mm-hmm. but that didn't happen. So I kind of just aware of my surroundings, and now that I'm here, I just kind of go with the flow with Albuquerque, whatever it has to offer me, mm-hmm. and bring awesome. it. So, um, oh. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nora. I just do you, like, what would you love to sing about? Or do you, you know, do you have subjects or people or a place or anything? Honestly, my next thing that I'm planning to write about, but I wanted to really touch people's mentality and souls is how people have talent here in New Mexico, but it seems like no one can really get out of here because mm. everybody hates on each other. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of along those lines, uh, what do you what do you like about Albuquerque? Like, what is your kind of what, what do you what is your what do you see as the positive qualities of this city? What do you mean? What is there not to like about Albuquerque? <laughs> I mean, look yeah. at it, it's dark right now. You see the lights that are up. I mean, there's probably some bad things going on right now, but who cares? There's some bad things going on everywhere. I mean, I love Albuquerque. That's okay. cool, man. Cool. Yeah. Man, so uh, one of the songs I definitely wanted to uh, to talk a little bit about was uh, was Unborn Child. I wonder if you might be willing to talk about kind of the genesis of that song and maybe your your thoughts as you were making it. Like, it's a lot of love in that song, clearly. But yeah, like, um, it was actually the first time I saw, uh, what do you call that, when you see the x-ray of the baby? Oh, oh a sonogram? Yeah, a sonogram. Um, I was sitting in the hospital room uh, while my girlfriend was uh, going through her pictures and stuff, and I was sitting there on my phone, and I know it was aggravating her, but <laughs> I didn't really care at that point because she didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and the whole time I was actually just writing lyrics on my phone. <laughs> That's probably the quickest song I ever wrote. Tight. It took me probably 30 minutes to write the whole song, format it and everything how I wanted it to sound. That's cool. Wow. And I already had invested into my own little setup, but I don't take the time to actually sit there and learn how to work my systems. How do you, uh, how do you like being a parent? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel not necessarily bad, but it kind of pisses me off how people walk out of children's life because yeah. they're missing a big opportunity of happiness. Yeah. It's true. God. Joy on demand. Yeah. <laughs> and hard, it's hard too, but yeah, man, yeah. it is also just yeah. like, it's so world changing. It's like Xfinity walking or something. So it's like on demand. <laughs> <laughs> you said you said your uh, your daughter's walking now, right? So yeah. that's got a, that's some that's big, some big moments. Yeah. Okay. Does she? Uh, uh, do you play your music for her? Uh, yeah, she goes to sleep to her own song. Oh, to that Aww. song? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's special. I mean, it's beautiful. I didn't I didn't put her name in there, or I didn't put uh, exactly yeah. dedicated to her, but I wrote those lyrics feeling 
for what I saw. I That's didn't know beautiful. if it was going to be a girl or a boy. I just saw the picture of yeah. my seed. Yeah. So um, that being said, I actually try to uh, push people to listen to that song if they're already a parent because uh. once you listen to it enough times and actually analyze the lyrics of what I say, a lot of parents actually feel that way. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. My unborn child. But whatever you want to make me smile. This a letter to my unborn child. I write this letter to my unborn child From the depths of my soul You visited the womb and made my life complete and whole I never thought I'd be chosen for such an awesome task It's a much greater blessing than what I could ever ask Can almost imagine you in my mind Beautiful, happy, bouncing, flashing and smiling all the time Feeling your flutter is a feeling like no other It does wonders for the joy you're the sooner be father really my baby, my child, my heart and my wonder You the one that I think of when things going down under, yep. with things going down under, yep. this is a song to my unborn child, I don't know if you're gonna be a girl or a boy, but whatever you are, I know you're gonna make me smile, this a letter to my unborn child, I don't know if you're gonna be a boy or a girl, but whatever you are, I know you're gonna make me smile. Okay, so that brings us to the end of another episode. I'd like to thank our guests, AC and Roland Pentala. Um, we're going to be taking a bit of a break, more of a hiatus, really. We're going to kind of fine-tune what we do around here. Oh, there's my clock, so you can tell what time it is. Um, we're going to try to uh, fine-tune what we do here and try to bring you guys a higher quality, more in-depth show in the near future here. So I don't exactly know how long it's going to take, but we're going to take a little bit here to kind of retune everything. So uh, please be patient with us and check back in from time to time and see if there are new episodes updating. Um, thanks, as always, to you guys for listening, and especially those of you who tell your friends, and especially those of you who donate via our Patreon uh, which you can find at patreon.com slash city on the edge. Um, we're going to be sending out some t-shirts and books and stuff here pretty soon to, uh, to those of you who have met that threshold. So thanks for your patience. Thanks to Natasha Chizdiz, Joshua Hayland, April, Rachel Langer, Lando Enchantment, Amy Nevitt, Jim Robillard, David Tagger, Christopher Holden, Jesse Crawford, Ryan Schiff, Sierra Nets, Ben Tucker, Jessamine, Farrell and Smith, Amy Gabe, Isaac Clark, and Sandra Dodd. Thank you guys so much, and we will uh, we'll be back to to tell you more Albuquerque stories sometime soon. Thank you, baby. This is a song to my unborn child. I don't know if you're gonna be a girl or a boy, but whatever you are, I know you're gonna make me smile. This a letter to my unborn child. I don't know if you're gonna be a boy or a girl, but whatever you are, I know you're gonna make me smile.